there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The Meadowlands Arena opened in New Jersey, which technically counts as the founding of the first church of Springsteen. Aspartame, artificial sweetener, was approved for usage by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The U.S. debt hit $1 trillion for the first time. And in Oakland, California, cheerleader Crazy George Henderson led the crowd in what is reported to have been the very first crowd wave of all time. Now join us as we do a wave ourselves for the tsunami of movies that came out in October of 1981. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, I'm doing the wave right now by myself. There, I just sat down. (laughs) The sad thing is I heard you also have a kiss cam in your room. I do. Uh, Drew, I I know we we say this a lot, but I think that when we were doing our prep, October 81 may have been the most daunting, massive month to date. It's crazy, and we're going to get into that. Real quick, I want to um, ask people... And, and I think this is uh, okay. I think we're among friends here, the, the listeners, the readers, as we call them. Um, I'd like to ask them to give us money. Why should you do that? Well, you should do it because if you're a fan of the show, it, it's not a cheap show to produce. We actually, we would like to be able to keep this thing going and do all five years. And I find that the best episodes come when we do all of our homework, like this month. You know, we considered almost 35 movies for inclusion. Patreon is your chance to support the show and help us pay for all the rentals and the purchases and set aside the time it takes to do this right. Plus, bonuses, right, Scott? Bonuses including interviews, commentaries. Uh, We have many more interesting ideas in the works. Uh, We also want your ideas on what kind of bonus episodes you would like. If you like commentaries and interviews, great. Say that. If you have a really fun idea for something that you want me and Drew to perform like your personal clowns, we'll do that too because we are. And I have to make, uh, personally, say oops, upside your head, say oops, upside your head, say oops, I made two boners last time, and I would like to own up to those. I was corrected on Twitter that I mistook Barbara Bach and Catherine Bach, uh, obviously not the same woman. And, uh, I also stated that The Boogans was a Canadian film when, in fact, it was shot in Utah. It just felt Canadian. It's a compliment. It has kind of a quaint, old-school Canadian horror vibe. So there, uh, I, I pride myself on being meticulous with my facts and my notes, and I hate getting stuff wrong, but I would much rather, and I speak for Drew as well, we would much rather be corrected than let uh, let something erroneous out into the ether forever. You should also look at the 80s all over store. 
uh, where you can find the films that we talk about here. Now, we basically turned it into a visual catalog of everything that we've talked about month by month. We've got almost everything there now. If you're even if you're not shopping for some old movies and you just kind of want to get a, a refresher on every film we covered per episode, the 80s all over store is uh, a fantastic uh, in depository for that information. And hey, if you decide while you're there that you just have to own a DVD of Student Bodies or Dead and Buried or whatever, then great. In the opening of the show, we often promise to review every major release of the decade, and there is this sort of ongoing behind-the-scenes conversation that we have about what a major release is. And this month is a really good example of that. To show you how dense the lineup of films that we're talking about is going to be this month, here are the titles that we are not discussing. Beauporé, The Woman Next Door, Quartet, The Flying Guillotine, Tulips, Body and Soul, Silence of the North, Chanel Solitaire, Man of Iron, and Priest of Love. There are so many of these films came and went. They played would play in like a New York or theater for a week. Uh, a lot of these were foreign films that came and went really quickly. And while we do want to be exceedingly thorough, and Drew will uh, get into that in a second, we're trying to keep the show moving and entertaining. And we also want to cover films that are re readily available. That you'll have a chance to lay hands on. Yeah, exactly. We will end up doing an entry for every one of those films in 1980, the book. Uh, when we publish that. And we want to make sure that we've seen everything that we're discussing again, and that we've kind of like reintroduced ourselves to it. And that means that you're really, you're piling movies on, and that can be a real trick. Like there's a movie that was released in October, 1981 that I'm almost convinced now doesn't exist at this point called black and blue, which was a concert film that was half blue oyster cult and half black Sabbath. Death and hatred to mankind. There is no live album for it. There is no sign of it commercially available. I can't even find it in gray market stuff. It really feels like it existed for whatever that theatrical run was. And then he's gone. Just doesn't exist now. And look, there's there's a famous martial arts film here. There's a Francois Truffaut film. These are not impossible movies to lay hands on, but just we're not going to make it to these. All right. So while we are we are completists on one hand, we are also realists. And when you hear the rest of the episode, you'll you'll probably start to gather why we have to compartmentalize just a little. So uh, with that in mind, I say we just jump in and we start with a movie that right now, especially I'm curious if people go back and look at this, how they're going to compare it to a TV show that has become a sensation almost overnight glow on Netflix. The movie we're going to talk about here is a Peter Falk comedy called. All the marbles. Harry Sears loves only three things in life. Iris. You're a lousy lover. You're a lousy manager. You're a lousy human being. I am not a lousy manager. Molly. My stars! <laughs> and the World Wrestling Championship. The best looking girls in the ring today. The California Dow. Tonight, he just might get all three. All the marbles. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Growing up, I know this movie just probably from the Malton Guide and maybe partially from Siskel and Ebert. I just knew that this movie had a, a, a rancid reputation. And it's just kind of a, an on-the-road story following these three people around as their trials and tribulations on the wrestling circuit. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't really back up to show you like the beginning of any of it. It just starts there already on the road. You get a feeling for what that relationship is right away, which is that Falk 
is constantly kind of lying, sort of, but not really, just kind of keeping their morale up. Both Vicky Frederick and Lorraine Landon, I, I got to give it to them. This is a really physical movie, and they are both 100% up for everything that the movie throws at them. It's directed by Robert Aldrich. If you know Aldrich's work, kind of the last dude you would ever expect to end up here. Uh, the director of The Dirty Dozen and Emperor of the North and The Longest Yard and The Choir Boys, known for genuinely being one of the hardest of hard dude movie directors who also directed Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, he was a very good director who, like a lot of good directors, kind of became more of a carpetbagger later in his career. This movie is dry. It's not very funny. It's not terrible though it kind of held my interest you know i was partially like is he going to screw them over is are they going you know i i wasn't all that into it as a sports movie but it is like the guy and two women dynamic you don't see too often in sports movies so that novelty kind of held my interest i'm not really a big wrestling fan but it's an underdog story i wouldn't necessarily recommend it but you know if you said you're a fan of this movie i wouldn't i wouldn't laugh at you i wouldn't cringe yeah, and this was the beginning of uh, Mel Froman's career. Like Robert Aldrich, this is the very end of his career. They were actually talking about making a sequel uh, because it did well enough overseas uh, when he passed away. So he might have made another one of these. Well, the interesting part in that in Act One of All the Marbles is that Falk and the ladies run into a Japanese gentleman early in the film, and he invites them to participate in a contest, a contest overseas. And for a minute, I thought that's what the movie was going to be about. And it's not. And I'm wondering if maybe they shot that scene late because they thought they might do a, a sequel in Japan. I don't know. It's an Easter egg. They were building the larger all the Marvel cinematic universe. And so come on, it's the Marvel verse. It is interesting when you look at this because it was made in 1981 and then you go and you check out Glow on Netflix, which is set in the early 80s as they're trying to set up the Women's Wrestling League. This is the real thing. This is not period detail. This is not them doing an 80s movie. This is just a movie that happened to be made right then. So it is fascinating to look at how real it looks and how low rent everything is. If you love that show, go track this down because it is you're going to get this weird time travel thing going on when you see how it really looked. It's uh, it's something else. Drew, does um, Netflix happen to have a very popular show right now about a lunatic tattoo artist? Because that's what our next movie is about. They do not, and thank God. It's Bruce Dern in Tattoo. Down through the ages, it has been worn by men and women, scholars and superstars, courtesans and kings. It is the mystic symbol of fascination and fear, seduction, sensuality, passion, and power. It is art, it is flesh. It is the mark. 20th Century Fox and Joseph E. Levine present a story of obsession, possession, love, and terror. Every great love leaves its mark. Tattoo. For mature audiences only, rated R. When I was uh, 12 and 13, cable served many functions for me. Uh, one of them was to watch whole movies and enjoy them as movies. But it served other functions, too. And Tattoo was one of those movies that 
had a reputation as you got to see it because it's got nudity. Tattoo is gross. And I remember seeing part of it and being put off. Just no thanks. I don't know what that was. I'm not into that and have not seen it since. And now seeing it as a 47 year old. Nope. Gross. Not into that. It might have seen a lot more envelope pushing back in 1981, but it is essentially what you've already grasped. Bruce Dern is an unhinged man who, for for literally no discernible reason, goes from odd to completely unhinged. There is no inciting incident. There is no sense that he was crazy in Act 1. He just literally, somebody flips a switch, and um, a beautiful model, played by Maude Adams, he ends up kidnapping her, and because he is obsessed with skin art, he, of course, starts putting crazy tattoos all over her body. So it's like the collector, boxing Elena, keeping a woman captive is your plaything. Uh, I, unfortunately, I think this movie kind of hurt Bruce Stern's career as far as leading man roles go. This movie didn't do him any favors. Well, neither did the interviews where he kept saying over and over that he actually had sex with Maude Adams in the final sequence. And she kept saying, uh, no, we didn't. The pre-abduction stuff is the more interesting well, they have their first date is seriously the most awkward date since Robert De Niro takes Sybil Shepherd to a porn theater. It, it starts off, he's fine, but then almost immediately he is way too intense, wound way too tightly, and clearly not well. And by the time he drops her off, she's like, I'm really sorry you know my address. I, is there any way you could just forget where I live? Her early m moments in the film are pretty good, Maud Adams, um, obviously known as uh, Octopussy. You know, it's just basically a very perfunctory, dull thriller. You know exactly where it's going, and it gets there. Act 3 is predictably unsavory, and uh, it's the director's only feature. Never made another film. He was a huge, huge ad man, though. This guy was like a legend, evidently, in advertising, which is so weird because you would think a guy who came from that world would be able to make a movie about how surfaces attract or how they, you know, and, and how they're used. I didn't even buy the stuff early on, the modeling stuff where she's like doing an ad campaign and it's what they hire him to do the original tattoo. I don't like even buy any of that, which is weird because it's the actual world the director came from. So you would think if he knew anything, he would know that. But it feels to me really fetishy, the beginning of it. Bruce Dern sees this tattoo ceremony in Japan and it's during the war. And it's his origin story. Like he stands there. He makes this crazy face for a moment. And then we cut to the rest of his life has been completely and utterly devoted to tattoos. That's it. That's his whole backstory. Let's move on from tattoo to a Roger Corman cheapie that probably made triple its budget. I had never seen it until a couple of days ago. Drew, why don't you tell our listeners about Smokey Bites the Dust? Homecoming queen Peggy Sue is about to be snatched. Roscoe, are you trying to abduct me? My daughter. And her daddy, the sheriff, is out for the catch and Smokey bites the dust. How long are you planning to hold me against my will? Until you like it. Make way for the biggest comedy crack-up of the year. Jimmy McNichol takes on the Mounties and leaves a path of destruction through 17 counties. Smokey bites the pasta, or I mean dust. The first comedy made expressly for the insane. Is this a major release and the films that we bypassed aren't? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to I'm going to give this one a major release status because it's directed by Charles B. Griffith and Charles B. Griffith deserves a little bit of our regard as we move through this decade. He, he was one of the last of the great driving guys working with Corman as a writer. 
This guy wrote Little Shop of Horrors, Bucket of Blood, Rock All Night, Not of This Earth, It Conquered the World, Gunslinger, Death Race 2000, uh, The Wild Angels. Like He was the shit, and he was a major part of that Corman explosion of stuff. Eat My Dust was his. This is a guy who I did not... I don't think as a director ever matched the output he, he did as a writer, but he had great energy as a writer and his movies as a director. Uh, there was uh, eat my dust. There was up from the depths. There was this one. And then one, I think he made one of the fantasy ones in the eighties, but uh, in the later eighties, but this one to me is him all over because it's totally unpretentious. It is a direct theft of about nine other things. It is Dukes of hazard and Smokey and the bandit just nakedly stolen and then it's delivered with complete mayhem uh ladled on top and as a car crash movie if what you want is a goofy car crash comedy the rednecks have never been more rednecky than they are in this and the cars are fucking destroyed yeah it's mindless and very cheap but it's not boring <laughs> I mean, it's far from my favorite car crash, mindless car crash movie, but it has its very kitschy charms in, in the grand pantheon of Roger Corman productions. Where'd you put it? In the middle, upper echelon, upper third? Yeah, I would say middle. I would say this is the kind of stuff that when they when we were going through the titles, I'm like, I know I have that. I know I have it on a disc somewhere. And I went looking and it's with Georgia Peaches and the Great Texas Dynamite Chase. Of the three of those, I think Great Texas Dynamite Chase is the best of the three. But I would put this right in the middle. I thought this was entertaining enough. And if I was in the mood for this kind of film and I had not never seen this one and I and I popped it in, I'd be very satisfied. I feel like, all right, that's exactly what I hoped I would find a B or maybe even a C or C minus uh, driving car chase smash em up movie that was just fine. And from there, Drew, we move on to film one in a very unlikely trilogy from an Israeli director an Italian star, a British actress, American actor, ninja movie called Enter the Ninja. The first martial art to sweep the modern world was Jiu-Jitsu closely followed by the discipline of karate. Then we were taught to combine the spiritual with the physical by the masters of Kung Fu. And now, the Cannon Group is proud to introduce the practitioner of the oldest and ultimate martial art, the Ninja. Enter the Ninja. Starring Franco Nero. Exploding into action as Cole, the White Ninja. Susan George is the proud and beautiful Marianne, a strong-willed woman who knows what she wants and just how to get it. And introducing Sho Kosugi. Kampai! Kampai! Kampai. Hasegawa, the black ninja, born of samurai blood, is unable to accept anything but the ancient ways. You did not drink, Hasegawa. He is no ninja. Bitter and merciless, this rogue ninja will stop at nothing to destroy any and all who cross his path. If you take on a ninja, no matter how many you are, be prepared for the consequences. Enter the ninja from Canon. Menachem Golan clearly hit the ground running with this film. 
Yeah, he directed it, and he would also go on to co-found Canon. Oh, he already had at this point Canon Films, which is going to you know a patron saint of this podcast coming up. Uh, Canon Films would really hit its stride in a couple of years. But Enter the Ninja was an early hit for them, and of course it led to uh, Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja Three: of The Domination, both of which we'll happily get to in in future episodes. But here's the thing: picture Franco Nero. If you don't know what Franco Nero looks like, just throw it into Google. Just picture, just picture awesome. If awesome was a person, yeah, he's a big, handsome, barrel-chested, tough-looking Italian guy. I love Franco Nero. Right now, picture him. He's the ninja. It's Iron Fist all over again. If you were annoyed by that, oh, get ready for this because <laughs> decent action, though, right? I love, I love when the stakes are really crazy in an action film or when they're over something. Oh, you mean like Manila land disputes? <laughs> like like over a coconut farm? <laughs> yeah, like I, a, a farm in the Philippines. He's there yeah. to like... That's what we're fighting about? Whatever. I'm here to survey the land with my <laughs> Italian ninja. Uh, but yeah, Enter the Ninja is mindless fun. If the title and the star sound appealing to you, then you'll probably enjoy it. Lots of cockfighting. Lots of cockfighting. If you're really into cockfighting, this is one of those movies where they went, eh, we could pad it out. Is there a cockfight we can shoot? This might have more cockfighting in it than cockfighter. <laughs> you, you, you may not be wrong. So we move from a typical action programmer to a litany of low-budget horror movies. Ooh, given, what time course, is it? Is it time for the horror movie marathon hoedown corner? Mega Blast? Let's say that. Last month we had a bunch of horror movies, and this, of course, being October 1981, we have a perhaps even larger batch of horror movies, and we start off with one of the more accomplished and underrated slasher knockoffs. When you say knockoffs, retreads, that always sounds a lot nastier than we mean it, but that's kind of what they are, because everybody was playing Follow the Leader, but... Even when you're playing follow, follow the Leader, you sometimes do manage to get a little originality and creativity into your formula. And that's what happened with Just Before Dawn. Run for your life. The nightmare has begun. It will find you in the hour when dream and reality merge. How could they know that beneath the awesome beauty of nature lay violence, danger, and death? All the blood. How could they know the heat of their bodies was the magnet that would draw the terror to them? <laughs> just before dawn comes horror, just before dawn comes death. Rated R. It does have George Kennedy and a young Greg Henry, and once it starts moving, it's pretty creepy. It's directed by Jeff Lieberman, who would go, uh, he did Squirm at this point. And Blue Sunshine. It's funny, because we're talking, like, we talked a couple of weeks ago about um, Gary Sherman, and how he's one of those guys who just, he never quite broke through, broke through. I feel like Lieberman's the same kind of guy, where he had a pretty good sense of what he was doing, and I, I like Squirm. I think Blue Sunshine's weird as shit, but it's got something going on, and like this one, there's there's some muscle here. He's not a bad filmmaker. I just, for whatever reason, it just never really clicked in for him. Yeah, it's just about five people who will go off there, there to inspect their new property. I think that's the premise, right? And run across a backwoods loons, kind of like, I guess, you'd wrong turn to compare it to a more contemporary horror film. It's well made. There's just... For some reason, I don't think there's any there's that one oomph or that one asterisk thing that really made it would make it stand out. 
Well, and that's the problem is there was so much of it that even if you did it fine, and this is fine, it's without having something that breaks through. And I've been thinking a lot about the ones that actually clicked. And it's really amazing what worked and what didn't. And I think a lot of times there's just one element that for whatever reason people seize on and they get very lucky in in the sense that that connects with an audience because this is as competent as anything in the Friday series. And it's, you know, got a decent cast and a couple of people you go on to recognize. And there's no reason it shouldn't have worked, except it just didn't. But once you like get past the, this is not going to be original. Once you get past that and you're able to like just, appreciate what's there some of these movies are pretty decent i think just before dawn has a solid reputation among horror fans but it's just generally unknown outside of that uh and a similar film in so many ways is uh strange behavior here in the peaceful midwestern town of galesburg nothing much ever happens morning mr mcnally the kids go to an ordinary college and they help science with a few harmless experiments you want me to call the state police? You want me to call anybody? Dead kids. They'll scare the living daylights out of you. Fiona Lewis, Michael Murphy, Louise Fletcher, and Dan Shore. This is a strange movie, Drew. And look, uh, this is ground zero for a guy that many of us know and, and like the work of, Bill Condon. And this is a movie that came out of real love for genre. Like these, these are people that loved what they were doing and they got a chance to do something. And then it's definitely its own thing. You may have seen it under a different title, Dead Kids. Yeah, what, what I like about this movie is that it, it plays very much like a, a knowing throwback to 50s horror films or with with a distinctly late, late 70s, a little bit of a darker edge to it. But it was all shot completely in New Zealand. It takes place in America, in small town America, but it was shot completely in New Zealand. And it just fascinates me that they had this concept and they didn't just say, well, let's just make it a little bit easier and do it in our own culture. It's got some goofy dated stuff, but overall, this is a fun little discovery. I like this movie. If you talk to the people that worked on and around the film, this this is one of those where there was a lot of affection while they were making it. I remember when... Um, I think it was uh, Starlog was covering it and they were like rabbit. They were like, this is really good. And it's clear that the reason that the guys that responded responded is because it does. Like you said, it has that distinctly 50s vibe to it and unpretentiously. So it's not trying to be smarter than those movies. It just is one of those movies. And th these guys would go on to collaborate again in a few years on a slightly less successful film, but still fun called Strange Invaders. Well, of course, we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much of the plot away because some of it is very basic and some of it is actually kind of clever the further you go into the film. But uh, Strange Behavior and, and Just Before Dawn. Great cast, Louise Fletcher. I really like in that one. And I am a fan of any time Mark McClure got work in the 80s. All our listeners will, of course, know Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen from the, uh, or from the Richard Donner Superman films and uh, a great character actor. And he has some fun stuff to do in this film as well. Hey, Scott. This next movie that we're about to talk about, um, it, it's weird. What What is this thing? I know where there's a huge hole in the ground. And at the bottom of the hole, down in the dark, there's some things. No one else in the whole world knows about them but you. Miss Livingston. 
Yes, you know. Oh, Miss Livingston. She's pretty. Really pretty. Well then, she's just what we've been waiting for, isn't she? The Pit. All right, yeah, it's about a kid. It's kind of an annoying misfit. Nobody really likes him. And then he strikes back against what he perceives to be his oppressors. Like, that's enough for something like Carrie or Evil Speak or Massacre to Try, whatever you, whatever. But beyond that, it's also the kid is a lunatic. His teddy bear talks to him and we hear it. There's also a pit of monsters in the forest behind his house. I mean, it, it is batshit insane, but yet stone-faced serious horror movie. I, I liked it when I was a kid. And now I like it now that I'm half enjoying it and kind of half laughing at the craziness of it. Like, it's part of it is legitimately entertaining and well-made, and the other part of it is just so bizarre you can't help but laugh. I, I gotta give it up to the pit. It is a movie that it feels like a sort of frantic game of and then, where it doesn't really matter if it adds up. There is an atmosphere to it that is ultimately so crazy that it becomes unsettling, even when the movie doesn't work. It's like, I right, Drew, I come to you with a story about a psycho kid who talks to his teddy bear. And then you're like, yeah, and everybody on the street, everybody hates him. Everybody picks on him, and he has just a troublemaker. And then you're I'm like, like, good, we can stop there. Good, that's it. That's the movie. And then and a week later, Drew emails me and says, oh, I added a pit of troglodytes, by the way. That's what the movie's about And we now. call it The Pit. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about The Bear? What, wasn't that an... You just put a hat on a hat. That's, like, way too much. It's amiably ruthless. That's what I wrote down on my notes. <laughs> Is that, does that make sense? Amicably mean-spirited? <laughs> Kind of like when we talked about, no, it's Bloody Birthday that we talked about, where Bloody Birthday is so gleefully unapologetic about what it is, and it doesn't do anything else. It's not even like it's it does that, but it also does other things. Bloody Birthday's got one thing on its mind, and the pit, although it's all over the place, is the same kind of, it's just doing what it's doing as fast as it can. That is a good double feature, Bloody Birthday and the pit. And uh, the kid is so wonderfully annoying. I, I think it's on purpose, but... He is so grating. <laughs> I, I like that you don't know. Yeah, I <laughs> can't tell if it's like they said play it over the top and he went too far or if they just said, no, 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 play it over the over, over the top. I love it. I love Just Before Dawn, Strange Behavior, and The Pit. Those are three good horror recommendations. Let's keep going, right? Oh, wait, what's the Prepare yourself for the most intensely shocking motion picture of our time. <laughs> Nightmare. The motion picture everyone is talking about. Hello? From the man who terrified you in Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th, special effects director Tom Savini, now comes Nightmare. Kathy? Where do you go? There's no place to hide. escape alive no one under 17 will be admitted from 21st century distribution coming soon tom savini was cited on the original poster but sued the producers to have his name taken off because he didn't actually work on the film but did consult with the effects designer on the film so the only thing that would have made nightmare interesting absent of that asset is just 
tiresome, boring junk. Um, boring, tiresome junk should be the name of the book about the guy that made this. And it's it's the kind of movie that I hate on a different level because it is built around a piece of flashback footage that we see nine million times. Here's the laziest screenwriting trick in the in the low, low budget horror movies was that if you saw your parents or one of your parents having sex, that would fracture your brain immediately and you would instantly become a serial killer waiting to happen. I also can't take it when you show a flashback 37 times and Nightmare is it's badly built. It's not fun. It's not even trying to be fun. It's trying to be really dark, but it's not smart dark. It's uh, it's about a, a miserable guy very much in the Travis Bickle vein. They said, oh, I'll get it. Taxi driver, but I'll make it a horror movie, a much, much nastier horror movie. And, you know, I'll just use the nugget of uh, angry loner losing his mind at the desperation of the world and the ugliness of the world and blah, 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 blah. And it's got it's loaded with, like Drew said, tiresome flashbacks, really bad fake scares. The, the main character and his plight is not interesting. Therefore, all the kills are just feels like who cares? Uh, before we get to something slightly more entertaining, let's just run through this one real quick. Because we both saw it as kids. We both knew it was terrible even back then. It's not funny. If your kids laugh at it, I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't want to I don't even want to finish that sentence. Sorry. Saturday the 14th. <laughs> <laughs> it gets bad on Friday the 13th. But it gets worse on Saturday the 14th. Richard Benjamin, Paul Apprentice, an innocent family driven absolutely batty. Just when you thought it was safe to look at the calendar again comes Saturday the 14th. The year's number one horror comedy spoof. It's your chance to laugh at everything that ever scared you. Come on, Billy, quit fooling around. Be sure to see it before sunrise. Saturday the 14th. What's weird about this movie is it's not really a spoof in the sense that it's trying to do specific films. It's a broad comedy like the monsters. It is not satirical in any way. Yeah, they, they inherit a, a, a haunted house that has a book hidden somewhere in it. And there's a lot of monsters trying to get the book for various reasons. That's pretty much it. And then it, they try to, and especially in the first act, try to layer on a lot of like sight gags. Eventually, it turns into something more akin to like an Abbott and Costello comedy where there's just a lot of running around with monsters. It seems to kind of want to be a monster movie version of Airplane, but then it seems to be content to be like third rate monsters jokes. Uh, and then and then, like you said, it wants to be more madcap. And it's just if you can't keep my interest and you've got Jeffrey Tambor playing a vampire, that's your fault. Never. Look up the Little Disgust sequel because it looks like it was shot in someone's backyard for nine dollars. Well, and you know that the only reason this got funded was because of Love at First Bite. Like Richard Benjamin for a little while there must have been a really appealing prospect for horror comedy. He could have gotten anything made as long as it had some sort of horror theme. And that's probably what this was. This was probably just somebody went, we will pay you and your wife really well, relatively speaking, to do this terrible, terrible thing. Speaking of terrible, terrible things, Drew, why don't you introduce my favorite low-budget alien knockoff? I think the fun of this next movie is that you spend an entire film thinking you're watching one thing, and you realize they didn't rip off what you thought they did at all, and you get something much weirder. And thank goodness for that, 
because the result is Galaxy of Terror. Prepare yourself for the ultimate battle. Galaxy of Terror. Stranded astronauts Edward Albert and Aaron Moran trapped in a living maze of terror on a world spawned by their darkest nightmares. It's been waiting a billion years to scare you to death. Galaxy of Terror. Galaxy of Terror is like a, uh, a rogues gallery of then B-level actors, including Aaron Moran, Robert Englund, Sid Haig, Grace Zabriskie, whom I met. Zalman King. Zalman King, who would go on to be the king of Red Shoe Diaries, of course. Uh, and this is just about, I mean, it's about a bunch of uh, space explorers who are sent to this weird pyramid. And apparently there is some kind of entity there that can sense their deepest, darkest fear and therefore attack them with said fear. Pretty gross, a few scary bits, a, a couple of laughable moments, one really ugly moment. Yeah, one moment that goes so far beyond everything else in the film that you're like, whoa, 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 hey. And sure enough, it was a reshoot. It was something that was added. It was not the original tone of the film. And it's really excessive. Giant monster molestation is all I'm going to say. And it and it is legendary as that kind of thing where... They went nuts when they shot that scene. Part of me is like thinking, yeah, that is kind of epic, scary in a deep, dark way. And then I'm watching the film again. I'm like, okay, yeah, but you could have gotten this across in like 15 seconds. This does not have to go on this long. And it's the problem with these kinds of scenes, because the conversation that you have with exploitation fans is that's why they're there. They want an exploitation film. They want that kind of stuff. And I realize that my appetite for exploitation is more about the insane invention of exploitation films than it is about the actual exploitation elements. Sometimes I find the excuses really unpleasant, and that's where it does. It pushes me away from the film. Yeah, I, and I like this film and Humanoids from the Deep, despite I think that the film's kind of leaning too far in that in the salacious and, and unsavory I think the invention in this one is pretty impressive. You know, one of the reasons the movie is notorious is because young James Cameron worked on it. It is a really inventive sci-fi film for the super low budget they shot it on. Like the locations look good. These environments are interesting. Uh, the actual weird alien planet. They did a pretty even though it's ripped off from other stuff design wise. They did a really nice job of making it work on a low budget. It's pure junk. But it's junk that is intermittently entertaining and occasionally outrageously like, what am I watching? Like, what just happened? I think it has a lot of B-movie charm to it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. You know, I'm glad you would dig. I didn't know if you would dig a Galaxy of Terror or not. Uh, but one thing that uh, I'm just trying to segue into the next horror film, which is terrible. Let's just let's just get into it. A flash of steel. An unearthly shriek. An icy breath. A knock at the door. Omens of evil. Warnings of death. An invitation to terror from the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper. This is called The Grim Reaper, but better known as Anthropophagus. Uh, and it is directed by Joe D'Amato, and I use the word directed very liberally. Yeah, he does a lot of B-movie sleaze. This is about a bunch of people who head off to a small Grecian island and get dispatched crazily by a cannibal psycho. Yep. 
It is uh, one of the many Tisa Pharaoh films. It is really weird watching her because she is so clearly a pharaoh. And because Mia Farrow did nothing like these movies and the movies that Tisa Farrow is in is are inevitably crazy Italian, super gory. She's in zombie, of course, which is Lucio Fulci's masterpiece. It is so weird having the sister of Mia Farrow be this recognizably the sister of Mia Farrow and this recognizable from these kinds of movies. Yeah, I always wonder, do the does the more famous sibling get angry at that? Like. Stop making everybody think I'm an Italian B-movie zombie food. Gah! They can't see B from where this is. When you talk about the basement of exploitation sleaze, Joe D'Amato's right down there, and he lives in that weird gray area where they might as well be porn films because they feel like porn films. They are produced like porn films. They are as ugly as porn films. Why, sh- why aren't they? Right, but porno movies have a lot of sex, and this movie does not have a lot of scares. And that's the problem. Let's just move on from that, and we'll go on to Drew's favorite kind of film, a re-release. It's funny, because we have now covered this once, and we are coming back to it because the film was pulled originally from theaters after about 11 minutes. And the film I'm talking about is The Watcher in the Woods. This movie... Bored me as a child, and it bores me now. (laughs) Well, and it's so weird that they, Ron Miller basically took over from John Hoff late in the film, and uh, Hoff did did the original cut of the movie. They pulled it from release. They went back. Disney put the ending on that they wanted on it. They re-released it here. It did no favors to this movie. I don't understand the fight they had, and I would love to hear both of them really make their case for how either version was good or better or in any way significantly different. It just didn't work as a film. So the arguing over how it ended seems particularly strange. It's as pointless as the inside the spaceship stuff in Close Encounters, but no one was asking for this. Right. And if you want to hear more about what we think about Watcher in the Woods, scan back about 12 episodes, lazy. Now we move on to a sequel that some people asked for until they got it. It's called Shock Treatment. Hello, I'm Dr. Cosme McKinley. I'd like to tell you about a new film from the gang that gave you the Rocky Horror Show. Shock Treatment. Ooh, shock Treatment. It's a jumping like a real live wire. Need a Ooh, Shock Treatment. So look out, mister. Don't you blow your last resistor for a sister that'll certify ya. You'll be pathetically crazy about shock treatment. Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when you say sequel... Uh... Hey, some people claim that this is not a sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And even though the roles have been recast, this time Cliff Young and Jessica Harper are playing Brad and Janet. Therefore, it is a sequel. I, I agree with you. I think 100% it's a Drew, sequel. stop agreeing with me. Podcasts are not for agreeing. Shut up and fight with me. As a choice for where to go, if you're following up Rocky Horror, the decision to make sure that Frankenfurter is the one cast member slash character you do not bring back, why do it then? If you can't get Tim Curry and you can't have Frankenfurter, why have the movie? Yeah, this is, it has, bears virtually no connection 
to the other film, except that the characters and there a few other actors do show up. Uh, yeah, like the supporting cast shows up, and that's what's, you know, clearly like a lot of the supporting cast is important to fans of Rocky. Yeah, when you've got Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn and Little Nell and Charles Gray, you've got enough of a connection then that that counts, and certainly Richard O'Brien writing the music counts, and and it's got a similar sensibility in terms of what it thinks of society. Yeah, there are some assets to be found in this movie. A handful of the songs, some of the songs are outright terrible, but a few of them are legitimately entertaining. There, there, there are some fun, poppy, uh, satirical songs in here. But this movie feels like uh, a film that we might have covered in our 79 test episode, like Americathon, where it's just constantly trying to make fun of television and consumerism and commercialism, but without any real focus. It's just kind of light flailing satire? Certainly the targets are not particularly new targets by this point. Brad and Janet go to the taping of this television show and they get picked to be on the marriage game show. And then the rest of the film is them being run through their paces, kind of like the way Frankenfurter ran them through their paces in the original film, where it was a constant test of who they were. And Brad and Janet already went through something. And so if they are supposed to be the same characters, they certainly learned nothing and were changed, uh, not remotely by Rocky Horror, which take the film as serious as you want. But the end of Rocky Horror for people that take it seriously is fairly transformative. And I know plenty of people who I, I always worked at theaters where Rocky Horror played midnight. So we had all the people that would come in and do it on Friday and Saturday night. And I saw the regulars and I saw how important it was to them. And then friends of mine would start to get into it. And I saw what it did for them. And for a lot of people who in the 80s, you know, we talked in the last episode about how we were still at a point where faggot was casually used in conversation and in comedies, and it wasn't a big deal yet. And certainly in my high school in the mid 80s, nobody was openly out and gay. And something like Rocky Horror was a chance to go and be part of a culture that felt like it was connected to that, but didn't put a name on it. And you just got to dress up and be crazy on Friday and Saturday night. That's such an important thing, and Rocky meant so much to people, even as a failure. The reason the cult lasted wasn't because they were making fun of it. It was because it meant something to them. And this movie picks up as if those characters went through nothing, and it kind of throws all that out. And I think a lot of Rocky fans probably felt rejected utterly by this movie. That's an interesting point. It has no real charm. It doesn't have any real heart. It's just you know a handful of catchy songs. Uh, a couple of good gags, but mostly it's kind of ugly to look at, and it kind of plays like uh, a bad version of Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. That's how it, it like the, it would like a B side. And having Harper in the film doesn't no no favors by comparison because she's so brilliant in Phantom of the Paradise. I'm a big fan of Jessica Harper. She should have had a bigger career. I, I like her very much. She, didn't she read for Princess Leia? She 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 reminds me of Carrie Fisher of that era. She picked really interesting things and did really interesting work in them. We're we're going to get to a performance of hers later in this year that I think is one of her truly great, great moments. If you're a, a huge fan of Rocky Horror, then yeah, dig up Shock Treatment, the semi-sequel, because you you know you want to see what the, the filmmakers, Jim Sharman, Richard O'Brien, what they went on to do afterwards, and it is... Now, here's a question. Did you Do you remember the ad campaigns for this? No, not at all. I read, you know, like Twilight Zone magazine and Starlog and Fantastic Films and Fangoria. That poster, the red poster, which Richard O'Brien's face, they ran that poster for probably six months in most of the comic books and magazines that I read. It was everywhere. They spent so much money on print buys for it. And then 
it never came out. Like it played a few theaters in New York and LA, and that was it. That was one of the first times I ever saw that kind of giant ad buy for something where they were really pushing it and then realized, oh shit, it's not working, and then just tanked it. Just never bothered releasing it. Not cheap to take that ad space away from Hostess Cakes. I mean, can you imagine how many fruit pies were not sold because of shock treatment? Uh, We move on from one obscure musical to another. Drew, why don't you tell our listeners about Zoot Suit? 1943, as soldiers marched overseas, young people stepped to the beat of the big bands, and something was brewing in the streets of America. Universal Pictures presents a film by Luis Valdez. This is a story of first-generation Americans. Where's his curtain? Here. Ah, Hiko, where's the rest of him? They had the rhythm. They had the look. And Hank Rayner had it all. But one night, a twist of fate changed his life forever. It's Henry Rayner! We'll find murder! The DA's charging conspiracy, Henry! Are they really going to pin us with a murder rap? They can't do this to me, I see. They can't lock me up! We got witnesses, Hank. Are you aware you're in here because some big shot up in San Simeon wants to sell a few papers? Has the jury reached a verdict? This is the fact, the fantasy, the music, the magic. Suit Suit, an American original. It's the very first um, Hispanic production on Broadway, and it concerns a fairly major civil rights riot and moment in Los Angeles history and is, I, you know, genuinely about something significant as a stage play when originally produced by Luis Valdez, who both wrote and directed the film version. It was a pretty big hit, and it was kind of a cultural moment. It makes sense that they decided to adapt it as a film. The next year, that's what impressed me in my research, is that it was a stage play, I think, in 79, and the film was out by 81. So Clearly, it was a big deal, and they were very excited about it, and they put a lot of time and and resources into making the adaptation. It is heartbreaking for me to look at, because I truly think as a record of a moment and as a significant piece of Hispanic film culture it has a place on the shelf as a movie it is almost utterly inert you approach a film like this you know wanting to be like oh i want to get behind a film like this Uh, uh, a trailblazing play and film in many ways for many people well in the incident itself the zoot suit riots in los angeles after world war ii latinos were struggling to figure out how they fit into los angeles culture this was a moment where basically they were put on trial for being latinos and the people that were put on trial were innocent of the murder that was that happened. And it was this big thing that, that went down that led to eventually these riots and the riots. That's another huge story. There's a lot of meat here, which then when you see how it's staged, it, none of that really. The film that's easy to admire, but I just never really connected with it. It's very stagey. It feels like he I, I mean, that's an easy criticism, but it, it I mean, he's clearly a talented man who made a, a very popular Broadway show. But that doesn't necessarily translate to the cinematic medium. A lot of the musical numbers are very blocky. It's so weird. The the guy who shot the film, David Myers, is a legend. Like he came out of he was a rock roadie and a rock photographer. And he shot a ton of great stuff in the 60s and 70s and went on the road with a lot of rock and roll legends and 
this guy was there for Woodstock. This guy was there for Johnny Cash in San Quentin. Like, he's the deal. Like, this guy is a legend. Surprisingly, he never figures out how to bring this staging to life. And, and so the whole thing is almost like you're in the back of the theater looking at this theater production and you're not close enough to really feel engaged and there's no film language going on that's pulling you in. I'm a little shocked at the fact that there's no energy in this movie where clearly this, the production that's going on, the actors are giving it a thousand percent. Edward James almost is playing to the back of the house. He's doing everything in this movie. It's not difficult to see why he became a star after this film because he owns, he's fantastic. And I do like the film. I just wish it felt more like a film and less like a filmed stage play. That's all. All right. So our next film, uh, we are, we're going to take a abrupt left turn. Uh, culturally speaking, and go from the hard streets of Los Angeles after World War II to New York in the late 70s, early 80s, and Malibu with a bunch of rich, boring, terrible white women in George Cooker's Rich and Famous. What's wrong with me writing a book? Makes you so jealous, huh? Mary was a housewife with a husband, a daughter, and money. Liz was a writer with talent sophistication and fame they knew exactly what kind of lives they wanted each other's how many men have you had three sailors and a jockey but never your husband mgm presents jacqueline bissett and candace bergen in rich and famous rated r well one thing we talked about in previous episodes is when great directors their their final films are not always that fantastic this is not a good film <laughs> that's that's an understatement this is this is a terrible screenplay terrible there was an earlier version of this that was adapted very liberally from the same piece of material that starred betty davis without giving away the punchline i love the notion of <laughs> there's a scene towards the end of this film where the women have a knockdown drag out verbal altercation and i wish word for word there was a betty davis version of that scene because i bet she would have killed it Jacqueline Bissett as a uh, as an erudite kind of Susan Sontag type author and Candace Bergen as her co- college friend who goes on to become like a Jackie Collins, right, type. Yeah, yeah, it, it clearly like Valley of the Dolls trash, like she's writing junk. Right, but then she has the chance, she's written something that's actually considered legit and she's up for a big award. So she's now in New York and begging her, her, her reputable friend to put in a good word for her around town so she can get this book award. And it's all about fractured relationships between women and how they can be loyal, but then kind of fall out of love with one another. And da, da, da. it's uh... I wonder if the point of the movie is that your your oldest friends are often your friends merely by coincidence of timing and geography, because for the most part, you have nothing in common and you'll treat each other terribly. They're just not nice to each other. They like. Can I just say Candace Bergen? I got nothing but love for Candace Bergen. Her southern accent in this movie is like a murderer standing in the room who every now and then stabs you. And you're like, stop it. Stop doing that. And then they stab you again. And for two hours, you're just getting slow stabbed by this murderer. It's the worst accent. And it comes and goes randomly. And she talks about herself as a southern belle and supposedly reads Gone with the Wind twice a year and is so over the top. Her name is Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, Noel. 
No, it's not. My name no, is it's Mary not. Noel, Drew, and I want you to see my new film, Rich and Famous, and I'll tell you why. It's a pulpy soap opera about college friends who become writers. I love the opening scene of this movie where they are plucky college girls in their late 30s. <laughs> interesting note, interesting note. Uh, Candace, Candace Bergen's daughter as a little girl is played by Nicole Eggert and as a teenager by Meg Ryan. Who is about as young here as she was in anything I've ever seen. Her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know. The- it wants to be like a beaches where it is a recur Because, like, it, the original scene is in the late 50s. Then we jump forward 10 years. Then we jump forward another eight years. Then we jump forward another six years. And that's the film does that repeatedly. And it's meant to show, like, the arc of this friendship. But they're, like we said, they're terrible, terrible human beings to each other. So there is no real friendship here. There are weird moments. Like, there's a party where the extras, I started looking at people at the party, and it slowly dawned on me, they weren't extras. They were at, I don't know how they did it. For the background in this scene, the party is filled with genuine titans of New York culture. Ray Bradbury shows up like seven times by the drink table and walking around, and he's not a character. It's not like they say, and Ray Bradbury's here. They just have Ray freaking Bradbury wandering around a party at one point. Yeah, it's not... I would say that if you're into, like... Like, we covered Mommy Dearest last month, and that's a pulpy, overbaked kind of uh, melodrama. This is in the same vein, although not quite as laughable. If you enjoy, like... I use the word trashy, semi-complimentary. If you enjoy trashy, pulpy drama, uh, melodrama with adultery and betrayal and forgiveness and all that rigmarole. And I will say that one of my heroes as a film critic, a local film critic, Carrie Rickey, is a big fan of Rich and Famous. So I want to throw out some love for her. We're going to go to this next one. And uh, I, for the longest time, I had it in my head that somebody else directed this movie. I thought this was one of those weird out in the desert head injury movies by Blake Edwards where he lost his mind for a little while and made terrible terrible comedies with people you wouldn't expect this was surprisingly not that it is terrible but it's not Blake Edwards fault I am of course talking about the Burt Reynolds David Steinberg comedy paternity Burt Reynolds has an unusual proposition I want you to have my baby I want you to be the mother of my son but he doesn't want to get married me you do a service, I pay you for it. It's a business transaction, cut and dry. Do I have to live with you? The next thing you know, they're going to be asking me to take my pants down. Oh, not yet. I uh, think it's good to get these things out in the open. Bird Reynolds in Paternity, rated PG. Now, at this point, Drew, in 80s All Over, we've covered three Burt Reynolds films. We've covered uh, Rough Cut, Smokey and the Bandit 2, and The Cannibal Run. Burt Reynolds seemed to do like a guy character and then he would do like a, a character for the ladies. Burt Reynolds was an ape. Make no mistake. When they found him, it, we've heard the story that, you know, he was a football player in college and that that's how he and it was a stuntman. And that's that, it, all that's a lie. He was an ape. They just found an ape in the jungle. and It was Burt Reynolds. And then they at some point put a sweater on him and told him to be sensitive. And those movies are crazy. This is the, uh, we called it before, the Alan Aldifying of Burt Reynolds. Now, we will criticize some films, but I do want to say, and I think I speak for Drew when I say, we love Burt Reynolds. As a personality, as an actor, some of his films not so great, some of his performances not so great. But a likable, even lovable, iconic movie star. Yeah, I can't imagine the era without him. I literally can't. His arc over the course of the 80s is so much a part of the fabric of the 80s that if you were to ask me what 
a non Burt Reynolds landscape would have looked like. I don't know. I have no earthly idea. Paternity is a laugh-free comedy, and here is the premise. He wants to have a baby, but he doesn't want a wife. And that's the whole damn movie. Now, Drew, I will say that Paul Dooley and Norman Fell, as as Burt Reynolds' buddies, are funny. They, those guys, God bless both of them, those guys could be funny in their sleep. It also opens with one of the worst original songs I've ever heard. Papa says da-da, baby says da-da too. Mama goes ga-ga, baby goes goo-goo-goo. Now that's hardly fancy phraseology, and yet it's understood. Babies agree a little baby talk works it's like somebody said, write me a Randy Newman type song. I hate Nilsson, and I'd like you to write something that makes other people hate Nilsson because it sort of reminds you of him, but shitty. Shitty, shitty, shitty. Here's what a vehicle is for Burt Reynolds in 1981. He's rich. He's handsome. He's single. He's very successful. Every w- woman and some of the men in the film compliment how good looking he is. Just about every woman he meets is willing to have his baby. And not just not just hypothetically have his baby. No, right then. First time writer, first time director, David Steinberg, of course, very famous stand-up comedian, not great as a director. Remember the name Charlie Peters, the screenwriter of this film, because we're gonna we're gonna hear that name repeatedly this decade, and it's never gonna end well. One really interesting bit, and this is funnier than anything in the movie. As it was being written and produced, the title was not Paternity. It was something else, and they had to shorten it to uh, avoid legal issues. And that title was From Here to Paternity. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh my. All right. Sorry. I, you I'm know what? sorry. I already, you know what? I already hated them. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm not going to shoot the messenger, but I already hated this movie. Now I hate everyone associated with From the movie, From here, too. Drew, From Here to Paternity, I want you to say it out loud. No. Okay. From here to Patreon, support us. All right. Well, if if you're willing to have sex with Burt Reynolds, turn off. Wait, no, and I am. All right. Well, from a film. All right. I got nothing. All right. I don't know what that segue was, but thank you so much. Um, you want to talk about uh, uh, a really hard segue to make here. Uh, this next film is a very somber very difficult at times sort of experiential movie about what it's like to get pulled into and eventually rescued from a cult. It's a film called Ticket to Heaven. I watched this today and I was pleasantly surprised by this. It reminds me a lot of a really good film from a few years ago called Faults. It's just about a guy who is aimless and it's not any kind of religious kook. He's just, they make it very clear that this is a normal guy and he's just aimless and looking for some direction in his life. And he heads out to California and, and becomes enamored with this cult lifestyle. And uh, and then his buddy goes looking for him. It's non-sensationalized, non-overly dramatized. It, it seems to come from a very earnest place. That's what's really uncommon. I think when I read the description for this, I thought it was going to be like hardcore or one of those where you go into the cult and it's really treated as creepy from frame one. I think what the film does beautifully and where it really deserves to be discovered and seen and people it's I don't know if I necessarily think it's like the best thing you'll see this month, but 
it's a, a really solid, smart film, but it shows you how David, uh, the Nick Mancuso character, gets pulled into the cult and how it works in a way that you would understand for almost anybody. One of my favorite little touches is he's been there for two or three days. Uh, he went to see a girl that he was into, and he's been there for two or three days. And as he's trying to kind of get his head straight, he goes to take a walk and they really won't let him walk by himself. They're not willing to let him have even five minutes to get his head clear because you can't. You can't let up. That moment is so well done. And I love the way the other kids are all cast because you get why you'd want to hang out. Uh, Ruthie, uh, the Kim Cattrall character. Kim Cattrall is 20 in this movie. And holy shit, she's adorable. And I mean, like like a ball of sunshine. She is so energetic and fun and constantly uh, cheerful that you can see how she's the bait. She's the kind of person they use to draw you in and say whatever she's living like. I want to be part of it. She's quite good. Also, Meg Foster. Very good. And and Saul Rubinek, as the uh, everybody knows, Saul Rubinek, you true romance character actor extraordinary. He's been in dozens and dozens of things. But earlier in his career, he did a, fa a fair amount of leading roles. And uh, he's really good in this. Well, and it's a very Canadian movie. And I, I would say uh, really some of the best of the bunch of the young Canadian talent that was working at that point. It really does hold up. It's a it's a very strong, very smart very small movie. Uh, and then we move on to something that I had avoided for many years because it had earned this reputation as the gold standard of art house films. That, that this was the uh, entry point. If you were to be a true cineast, you had to once sit down with the celebrated, daunting My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, this is a case where my exposure to the film came largely because Siskel and Ebert would not shut up i was watching this scene i didn't want it to end i didn't want to come back to the show and have to talk about the movie now what are, the, quali movie now, so what are the qualities because i think this shows us at least where we critics uh -huh. stand for something because this is what i want films to be like well I, I i've never seen another film like this and i don't know if there could be another film like this so but i'm glad this film is like it is even if i don't love the movie as much as they do which i don't a film critic banging a drum for something they love it's beautiful. That's what I remember is when they would have those moments where they would get completely carried away about a movie, whether I ended up loving the movie or not, I realized that is the privilege of that gig. You see something. It doesn't matter what the marketing budget is. It doesn't matter how big the stars are. It doesn't matter if you have a platform. You can decide how much energy you put into telling people to track something down. And now what is my dinner with Andre? It is uh, Wallace Shawn, who, of course, everybody knows from. Princess Bride, inconceivable, and Andre Gregory, gentlemen who were friends in real life, and they apparently realized that a, a series of their conversations uh, tailored to, you know, the proper screenplay format could make for a very interesting film. Imagine that, Drew, that somebody decided that a conversation between two people would make art if properly edited and uh, curated properly. You look at The Trip, which is an ongoing series now of films it's a series when it's on English television, but it's a, you know, a film and edited down version here. And it's just Coogan and Rob Brydon on the road kind of busting balls. What I love about this one is I, this is one of those movies that I consider kind of a, um, a Rorschach. I think you are very much whatever experience you're going to have with it is very much about who you are when you walk into the movie. The whole first half of the film is Andre Gregory essentially monologuing at Wallace Shawn. And Wallace Shawn doesn't want to go to the dinner in the first place because he's not really working. 
He's not feeling good about where he is in the business. Andre Gregory is this sort of legendary director by this point who they'd worked together once, but then Andre had dropped out. And so nobody knew why. And this is the first time that they really sit down and Andre lays out where he's been and what he's been up to. And then the second half of the film is more a push and pull as, as Wally starts to push him back on a lot of what you just said is bullshit. And what I find interesting is that the the whole first half of the film, you don't know how you're even supposed to react to these stories that Andre Gregory is, is telling. And I think what he's talking about, the you know artist colonies that he goes and he, he teaches at and the experiences that they have and all the stuff that he goes through, 99% of it is this pretentious self-discovery workshop bullshitty est encounter get in touch with your inner person thing that was going on in the late 70s and phil kaufman roasts them beautifully in invasion of the body snatchers i think cronenberg dealt with it repeatedly i think this movie does a really good job of deflating a lot of that self-important shit that people would just spout I love that the movie kind of pantses it halfway through. Yeah, that's the funny. That's the part that that you, when people would dismiss this as pretentious or you know uh, highbrow, it's a deconstruction of that of that whole idea. What I find really interesting is that this film is directed by Louis Mal, who we talked about in in Atlantic City, who is a if nothing else a visual director. He finds really interesting ways to keep this movie from just being point and shoot and there's not a moment you're thinking about him you're not thinking about the camera and not thinking about what he's doing which is mind-boggling because you aren't thinking about it the fact that he keeps your mind off of it is terrifically impressive a lot of directors would have gone the other way and ladled something on the top to try to keep it interesting visually he becomes invisible Put this movie on and tackle it, and you will find that it is not indecipherable. It is not highbrow. It is obviously well-written, very funny, and uh, I, I'm glad I never saw it as a kid because I wouldn't have gotten it and it would have bored the shit out of me. I think at this point now especially, I like the fact that Wallace Shawn in this movie is really wrestling with one of the central moments that happens for a lot of people when they and you know these are not children in this movie they're not young men they're, they've been around and they've worked in theater and they've been they've already had fairly long careers by the time this movie was made wally sean's really wrestling with how do i financially keep doing this and um where do i sign up to sell out because i really want to i'm ready he he thinks about money a lot now and he has turned a corner and that's something that especially in art house cinema in the early 80s to have artists really wrestling with that notion of no no i want to be embraced by the mainstream i want to work more i want to do this i like that it does have a really interesting insight into the creative process art versus commerce or not even art versus commerce but art com in bed with commerce it's, it deserves the praise it's gotten. I, I get that if you feel intimidated by a film like this, but don't be. It's very accessible. Now, that is one sacred cow of art house cinema from 1981. This next movie is another sacred cow, and it is one that I don't know I feel uh, the same way about as the people who put it on that pedestal. So let's get into it with The French Lieutenant's Woman. It is a romance of erotic passion, a glorious film to love and linger over, says Gene Shallot of NBC TV. Newsweek calls it a romantic blockbuster. And Time Magazine says Meryl Streep provides new life to a cinema starved for shining stars. Meryl Streep, Jeremy Irons, The French Lieutenant's Woman, 
Rated R. Here we have uh, the great Meryl Streep and the fantastic Jeremy Irons in dual roles. Uh, they play uh, a pair of filmmakers who are making a period piece, tragic romance, and of course they play the lead roles. So in a way, they're kind of not not dual roles. They're always playing the same character in a way. This novel by John Fowles was one of those very celebrated books, and there was a lot of conversation about how it really couldn't be adapted to film. And it reminds me of Atonement in that way, in that the reason that they said it couldn't be adapted is it has to do with a narrator who you should not trust in any way. And the book that he wrote is this kind of shifting landscape of what is true, what is not. Her story that she uses both to cast herself as an outcast and that she also uses to draw Jeremy Irons in uh, is constantly being adjusted. And the truth of it is very, very slippery. The adaptation, what Harold Pinter did was create the idea that they're making the movie at the same time. And so we're watching the making of the movie of the John Foles novel. So they're shooting the book. That stuff is shot so that there are whole sequences that play out as if they are from the book. Yeah, but I, I love that. I think the whole framing idea, I've never read the novel. Uh, I do know the history of it to a degree. I think the framing story is is fascinating. I think it adds a real interesting layer to what may have been a very, to me at least, starchy period romance. Well, but and see, and her character in the book is a liar. Her character in the book is such a is already somebody who is playing nine different things in any given situation and very aware of what is expected of her. And it feels like he is far more into her in the real stuff in the between the actors. Like he is really falling for her or finds the the what whatever is going on between them to mean more. And whereas she, I get the feeling is doing it because it helps the performances. And because it informs what's happening between them, there's a great sequence where they go to their house. Uh, he, Jeremy Irons invites her and her husband to come to have a sort of long day with his wife and family. And it's a crazy situation because the, clearly they want to touch each other and they want to be close to each other. But they have put themselves in a place where the spotlight could not be any brighter as actors you got to think part of that is the challenge of it. Part of that is, can I do this? I like the layered aspect of it. It adds a lot of interesting uh, wrinkles to the to the meat of the story, because most of the film takes place, you know, way, way back yonder. Uh, and so the the contemporary moments are relatively rare. Uh, and it constantly reminds you that, you know, you're watching a story that they're creating, but that doesn't lessen the emotional impact of it because they're creating it for an audience is just as sincere as if it had oh, hard. How do I explain this? <laughs> no, I see what you're saying. My biggest problem, the reason that I don't connect to this movie as much as I think some people do is I feel like they're juggling a lot. And then when you get to the home stretch, I get ambiguity. I get the idea that you want to leave some things for an audience to do. And I feel like this movie more than many others unravels at the ending because they are afraid to conclusively decide what it is they're doing. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that always goes into get, trying to guess the filmmaker's intent. It does not feel to me like they land it. I, it really doesn't. Were they staunchly being ambiguous for a reason or was it, oh God, we don't know what to do. We painted. Well, that's what the book does. The book, the book allows you to double back through a couple of versions of things. And so the film wants to try and have it several different ways. It feels like on film, I don't think it plays the same way. And I think ambiguity on film is very difficult because it's not like it is in print 
where you can suggest something with a very limited number of words. Whereas in film, you're looking at it. It's concrete. It's right there. It's t- it's really tough to do internal uh, I- I- motivation in a film. Whereas in a book, you could say, he thought of pushing her over. But in a movie, you know, how do you get that across? It feels to me like the last 10 minutes of the movie are missing. It's not that it feels ambiguous. It just feels like they stopped. Yeah, I, f- I get that. I-, I-, I quite enjoyed this one. Uh, director Carl Rice, underrated. Uh, other films he directed that are very good. The Gambler with James Caan. And, and Who'll Stop the Rain? That's another very good film. And this yeah, it didn't work a lot, but it was an interesting cat, yep. definitely. Uh, speaking of interesting cats, let's move on to a very fascinating figure in the world of film and literature in the early 80s through the mid-90s. And that gentleman is named Michael Crichton, who wrote many popular novels and directed several films that are not connected to his novels. And those films that are not connected to his novels are usually... Juicy, wacky, weird, fun. And that's kind of how I feel about Looker. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. You don't know what's going on. This is more than commercials. They're killing all the girls that are perfect. What have you got me mixed up in? If looks could kill Looker. Rated PG. Now playing. Check newspaper for a theater near you. Look, he was the high concept king from day one. He would get an idea, and that idea would be everything. And certainly with Looker, you know, it's not a theme park with dinosaurs, but it's a big idea, which had to do with something that I think was probably in the conversation for the first time back then, the notion of chasing perfection and plastic surgery just being for shits and giggles you know before that it was mainly used for major trauma or for surgery recovery plastic surgery for voluntary correction of stuff that was already fine that was new and i think Crichton really the idea of chasing perfection is what he wanted to tackle here Uh, how well do you think he did it Uh, this is a wacky ass movie okay this is not the kind of, uh, of paranoid thriller that you watch with a straight face. And I I can't really tell if Crichton wants us to watch it with a straight face or not, because it seems just two degrees too wacky to take all that seriously. It starts out as a simple mystery about models committing suicide, and it turns into a wacky, paranoid thriller about the evils of technology, subliminal advertising, commercials, television. There's a This movie has a gun that will freeze you. Yeah, I shoot you with a gun... And you stand there unconscious for 20 minutes. And then there's a car chase with this gun. (laughs) Of course there is. Albert Finney, the king of being miscast. Here he plays a lovable, wisecracking plastic surgeon who's the only guy who can save the day from these evil corporations. Uh, It's got James Coburn as the bad guy. It literally feels like three concepts thrown together. It feels like... Models, this whole thriller about models committing suicide. And then there's also this stuff about these insidious advertisers, something like something out of Halloween 3. And then it's also a movie about a horny plastic surgeon played by Albert Finney. It's a good looking movie. It's shot well. My favorite bit is when, oh God, this ultra high tech thriller. And they break into the super secret lab by piggybacking onto a robotic janitor. But I will give the film credit. Later in the film, they get into the whole idea of digital imaging. And and there is some concepts in this movie that 
I, I don't, I'm not saying Looker <laughs> invented led to any kind of breakthroughs in CGI, but there are some clear early ideas about computer animation in this film that definitely came to pass. So while there's a lot of silly stuff in Looker, you can still see little slivers of Michael Crichton's cleverness and and, and forward thinking. That was a big part of his process was he knew so many scientists and so many people who worked in that field that they would talk to him about little bits or little innovations or this idea. And there's a sequence in, in here early on where Susan Day uh, is getting scanned. Albert Finney walks around the building where they're doing the work and he's being shown around by the doctor and she shows him this this software. It shows exactly where he's looking during a commercial. Well, they, they use that stuff nonstop now, and especially in VR, programmers are going to have direct access to all of that so that they can fine-tune games, try to get even more laser-focused uh, and demographically driven. And it's kind of scary stuff. And I think Crichton recognized early on that there was something about it that was genuinely a little creepy and would always be creepy. That's what I like about Looker, and to a similar degree, a film we'll get to later called Runaway. He's got a lot of silly stuff, but even in his silliest movies, there are some uh, there's some really smart ideas in them. We're going to close out with a, I guess you could call it a controversial horror film, right, Drew? Would you call it that? I would. I would definitely, and it's probably going to be controversial by the time we're done talking. Well, we saved this one for the end, and we didn't wedge it in with all the other horror movies, because I, I this one holds a special place in my heart, and I honestly don't know if it does for Drew, but let's just jump right into... Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2. From the people who brought you Halloween, more of the night he came home. Halloween 2. There was nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason that wasn't even remotely human. Don't miss the all-new Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. Halloween 2. Rated R. The horror continues. Now playing at a theater near you. You know what I love? What do you love? I love sequels that pick up immediately after the first film. I love that idea. I love the idea that your story is not just over and like it's not over. We'll come back to it in a year. No, there's more that night. That's what Halloween 2 starts off with. It picks up immediately where Halloween lets off and takes place all throughout the same night. Jamie Lee Curtis is, of course, secured away in, in, a, in an isolated hospital, uh, virtually deserted. And like most people, I think hospitals are really effing creepy, especially late at night. They, they squeeze a lot of mileage out of that. Uh, I don't think it's a good movie. Here's my first and biggest problem. Laurie Strode is a dishrag idiot in this movie. Everything that is interesting about Laurie Strode in the first film is done. She is mute. She is scared. She's ineffective. She is nothing. I will give you all that. I will give you that 100%, even given the fact that she just, you know, uh, suffered through a horrible trauma and she's physically and emotionally our hero. Uh, Yeah. If she's our hero, she's still got to be an interesting. I totally agree. She still needs to have some of her own agency. She still needs to be strong. In some regards, Laurie Strode is not well written in Halloween 2. She is not. I think it is amazing that they both overthought and undercooked this movie. There is no need for the sister garbage. And if we're going to start two minutes later, just keep moving. Tell me a story that, that has some sense of motion still. 
I disagree with you completely. I hate that they lock Laurie down to one location for the whole film. It feels to me like a cheap answer to the first film. Like, oh, shit. Well, okay, we got to do this. We got to do it fast. Even though it took three years for them to make this thing, it still feels like they decided we got to do this in a weekend, a one place. Let's go to one place. And there is not a new idea in it. I But see that again. But now now you're getting into the motivations. We don't know their motivations. Maybe. No, I'm saying how it feels. It feels to me like a cheap answer to how do you make a sequel? Well, OK, we'll do the whole thing in a hospital. And that way we don't have to move a lot. That's how it feels. Whether that's what it was or not. As a viewer, I feel cheated by this movie. OK, then. All right. But if I'm John Carpenter as the executive producer on this and they say, OK, we got three concepts. Concept A is it all takes place right after that, and, and he's chasing her and other people through the hospital. And he goes, okay, not bad. What are your other ideas, Drew? What are the other two ideas? Here's where we're going to get controversial. Here's my answer to you. There has never been a good Halloween sequel, and there will never be a good Halloween sequel. Come at me, horror bros. Come at me. Oh, You're mad because I'm right. Stop. Don't. It's a terrible, terrible franchise. There was one movie in Halloween, and we saw it. There is no other story, and they have conclusively proven by this point there is nothing there is no meat in the first film that went unexplored that then justified any other movie they made i don't care if you like them or not i think they do not have any reason narratively to exist i'm not a fan of the halloween from four on it feels like a horror franchise that was really putting the tracks down right right in front of the train and not in a not in an artful way. Uh, I, I think that four, five, and six have, you know, flashes of scary moments, flashes of funny bits, and and some good gore maybe here and there. But for the most part, I agree with you. This is not a, gr- a good franchise. I think Halloween three is unique and, and interesting in its own right. Halloween three isn't part of the franchise. Halloween three is its own beast that lives over there that we'll talk about next year. Okay, so let's just say I don't totally agree, but let's get rid of four, five, and six, and seven and eight. They're all let's just. Put them aside. They're junk. I still think that Halloween 2 has some legitimate craftsmanship and effort put behind it. You, What you see as a lazy concept, I see as kind of a ballsy sequel idea. Okay, so she's his sister, so that's why he wants to kill her. You know why I'm not scared of Michael Myers anymore? Because I'm not his fucking sister. That's a huge miscalculation. He goes from being this genuine figure of mysterious fear, and it's the horrifying inclination to give backstory to things that need no backstory the moment you make her the sister and that's why he needs to get her you rob anybody else of any involvement in the story i don't disagree but i look at it from the perspective of all right we're doing halloween 2 when you make a sequel you got to do a lot that's established so you don't piss off the fans but then you also want to incorporate something new and i could honestly see somebody coming along and saying this idea that Lori is his sister. Not a great idea, but I can see it as a legitimate effort to expand the mythology and add a new wrinkle to a sequel. I'm not handing out whether or not I like a movie based on whether you get a gold star for effort. And Michael's plan in this movie is he's just kind of standing around jacking it for the whole film. There is nothing. He is boring. It's funny that we're, we're going to talk longer about Halloween 2 than we did my dinner with Andre. We are heathens. That aside... It's just a carnival funhouse of dark hallways, jump scares, scary atmosphere. I think it works. I enjoy it. I think it's just a meaner, sleazier version of the first one. And I think the first one is so good. That's the important thing. This is a like a B minus horror film. 
Halloween is an A-plus classic. I, I think a B-minus is you're being very kind. I think this movie coasts on, hey, remember when he walked down the hallway and there were shadows in it and John Carpenter's music played and that was scary? Yeah, it's that exact thing. My affection, a good portion of my affection for this movie may be attributed to nostalgia, but I also think it's if I, if I were to watch it tonight, I could probably ramble on and on about how I think that was a well-crafted scare or that was a creepy moment. I just don't like that it had to, then it leans on the gore, then it leans on the meaner violence, then it, it like, it in every way is the cheaper, shittier version. The irony that Halloween 2 is unnecessarily and excessively gory when the original has nary a drop of blood in it is a product of all the, 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 the Friday the 13th and the remakes, and I mean, the sequels and the knockoffs upping the ante in only three years. If that hadn't happened, if the gore quotient hadn't been raised so quickly, Halloween 2 might have come out looking like Psycho 2, a very refined, classy sequel to a horror classic. I can't wait to get to that one. So we are going to close out this epic episode. I want to thank Drew. Uh, I want to thank every single listener, every patron, uh, every person who has tweeted or iTunes or Facebooked. Thank you so much for all the, uh, what do they call it? The signal boost. We need it and we appreciate it. Remember, the 80s All Over store only works if you use it. So visit us at 80sallover.com. And if you love the show, you can always help by writing iTunes reviews and rating the show. Spread the word. You have helped us build a terrific community so far. Please, let's keep growing it. Next time, we are going to have Treat Williams in a parachute. Bo Derek's husband cashes in. Bugs Bunny gets loony on the big screen. And Terry Gilliam is going to conquer time itself. All that and more in November of 1981. <laughs>